0: Good morning once again, everyone. Great to see you. Let me get myself to Micah here in the Old Testament. All right. Well, again, great to see you guys. Great to be able to worship the Lord together. And, uh, you know, we've reduced our liturgy in light of uh, all the new restrictions here with COVID-19. And one of the parts that I am missing the most is the part right before we come up and do our announcements and do our scripture reading, which is the time that we take to just fellowship with one another and get to know each other and hug each other. And uh, I cannot wait until we're able to do that again. But uh, we are grateful for the opportunity that we have to gather corporately as the people of God and worship and study the scriptures together and by God's grace continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I want to begin with a word of prayer. I'm not going to read the scriptures up front. I'll read them at a point in the sermon today, so that's a little bit different. But let's pray and uh, just commit our time in God's word to him. Heavenly Father, we are once again gathered as your people on the Lord's day. Just as you've commanded us to do. And Lord, we believe that as we gather and as we submit ourselves to the scriptures, and as we offer praise and worship to you, Lord, we believe that you are with us and we're so thankful for that. God, we believe that these times of corporate gathering are essential for the health of our souls. And Lord, we again just rejoice that we can physically be present together again. Lord, we pray now that your word would speak to each of our hearts. We believe that your word is living, that your word is active, that your word is God-breathed. And so, Lord, we're eager this morning to be spoken to once again by the living God, by our Father who is in heaven. And Lord, we know that uh, your word speaks to us in different seasons and different circumstances. And Lord, we're so thankful that through the whole counsel of the Word of God, we are not left uninformed. We are not left directionless in this life. And so, Lord, we pray that your Word, once again, would prove to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So, Lord, bless our time in your holy Word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, when we were here together last week, we were once again uh, with heavy hearts. Uh, We had, again, we were talking about last week how we had sort of these two conflicting emotions that we were trying to balance. On one hand, we were so joyful last week to regather as God's people and be here corporately. And then on the other hand, we were all struggling with a heaviness about the things that are going on in our world. And with the passing of another week, that has not changed. If anything, that's only intensified that, again, there's this growing heaviness over the situation in our society. And when you pause and you reflect and you think about it, 2020 has been a hard year. Um, remember early in the year, Kobe Bryant passed away tragically and his daughter and those other passengers on that helicopter. And that hit, hit a lot of people hard here, particularly in Southern California. Then, of course, we've been facing this global pandemic for months now, which has uh, brought fear and anxiety and obviously tragedy to many households in America. We're facing Great Depression levels of economic collapse. Thankfully, we've seen a rebound in the unemployment rate just as of this last week, but a ton of economic uncertainty. And of course, now there's massive protests across the nation in response to the violent deaths of several unarmed African Americans, like Breonna Taylor, like Ahmaud Arbery, and most recently, George Floyd. And of course, in numerous cities, peaceful protests have devolved into riots, vandalism, looting, and acts of violence. And many people are feeling like they wish that 2020 could be canceled. Like, can we just stop this year and just move into the next year and maybe start getting some good news and some positive change? But as a Christian, I'm filled with hope. And I've been filled with hope this entire time because I believe as a Christian that 2020 is serving an incredible purpose in the plans of God and that the work that God is accomplishing right now in the world is profound. Family, we know from the scriptures that significant growth is seldom produced when we're living on the mountaintops. Significant growth is produced as we walk through the valleys. I read this on social media the other day, and I quote, What if 2020 isn't canceled? What if 2020 is the year we've been waiting for? A year so uncomfortable, so painful, so scary, so raw that it finally forces us to grow. A year that screams so loud, finally awaking us from our ignorant slumber. A year we finally accept the need for change, declare change, work for change, become the change. A year we finally band together instead of pushing each other further apart. 2020 isn't canceled, but rather the most important year of them all, end quote. Now, these past couple of weeks have brought our nation once again face-to-face with the sins of racism and injustice, and everyone is forced to face it and to deal with it, which is a good thing. Now, I, like many of you, grew up in Southern California. I grew up in a very diverse neighborhood, I went to a racially diverse elementary school. I went to a racially diverse church. And I remember it wasn't until I was in school that I first even understood concepts like racism. And it was as we were studying history and learning about the civil rights movement and learning about slavery in our nation. And I remember as a young boy being shocked by that. How could anybody think this or believe this? Because my experience up to that point was I had friends of every race, and we never thought anything about it. As a little boy, I I suspect I thought of racism in America much like polio in America. Sure, somebody somewhere probably has this, but we got rid of that a long time ago. But family, I've grown up a lot since being a little boy and thinking that. And again, if anything, these, these events of the last few weeks have painfully reminded us that racism is very real In this nation. Now, one of the things that's been so challenging for many of us as Christians over the past few weeks is the bombardment of information. There are so many voices, there is so much noise, there are so many perspectives. And that's why it's so important for us as believers to come back to God's Word and constantly ground ourselves and our hearts and our thinking in the Scriptures. And so even though we just started a series in the book of Galatians, we're pausing that series today in an effort to reground our thinking and our hearts in the scriptures as we try to consider this cultural moment. The title of the sermon today comes directly from verse 8 in Micah chapter 6, and the title of the sermon is, What Does the Lord Require of You? You. And I want to just encourage you this morning that as you think about that title, what does the Lord require of you? Think about it personally. Let's not just go, yeah, 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 this is kind of God's God's heart, God's thoughts, God's standards for people out there. We, We all need to say, what is God requiring of me? What are my marching orders? What is my responsibility as a member of the household of faith, as a child of God Almighty? What does the Lord require of you? Now, let me give a little bit of background and context on the book of Micah before we just kind of parachute into chapter 6, okay? We need a little bit of the backstory, and it's actually very enlightening. The book of Micah was written during the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel. God's people were living in sin, and because of their sin, God allowed the Assyrians to ultimately capture Israel and take many Israelites captive. Now, the sins in Micah's day were of two different types. There were spiritual sins and there were social sins. Let me explain these. the the spiritual sins in Micah's day were that God's people were now going through the motions. They had given themselves over to basically ritual rather than heartfelt worship. So they would still go through the motions. They would still offer sacrifices to God. They would still go to temple. They would still go to synagogues. They would still do those things. However, their hearts were far from God. And so, They were devoid of relationship. Not only that, they had actually adopted many of their pagan neighbors' spiritual practices that were idolatrous. So these were the spiritual sins. The social sins, which is what Micah is predominantly speaking against, were grave injustices. And they were mainly injustices of the upper class in Israelite society against the lower classes. What what had happened is the people of God had divorced God's standards, God's law, God's rule for how you need to interact with each other. They had divorced God's standards from their daily dealings with their neighbors. And that's important because they knew what God wanted. They knew what God was calling them to. They understood God's standards, but they didn't apply them in their daily interactions with one another. Let me give you a flavor of some of the sins in this Uh, time period. We see him here in Micah. Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields, and they seize them, and houses, and they take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. I'll spare you chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, because it's very graphic, but you can read it to yourself. I'll jump over to Micah 3, 9 through 11. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob. So here's the leadership. And you rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us all? No disaster shall come upon us. Finally, Micah chapter 6, verses 10-12. through 12. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth grave injustice among God's people and in God's land and because of all of this God is threatening judgment against his people and that judgment is massive I won't get into all of it but it's spiritual judgment it's personal judgment against people's sins it's socioeconomic economic judgment on their land and God is threatening all of this judgment because of the sins of his people. And the people want to know what they can do to appease God's wrath and the coming judgment of God. And that brings us to verses 6 and 7. So when, they, when they're warned that judgment is coming, here's what they do. Verses 6 and 7. They say, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Do you notice what they're saying? Okay, God's going to judge us. I know, here's the solution. Let's do more ritual. Let's offer more animals and sacrifice. Let's offer more oil as an offering to the Lord. Maybe I should just offer my firstborn child as a a payment for my sins. Maybe that's what God wants from me is just more ritual, more things that I can do. And what's God's response to that? No. Verse 8 is God's response. And in short, it's this. I don't want more ritual. I want repentance. I want you to stop what you're doing and start doing what you've always been called to do. Here's verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Very famous verse. Three parts. Number one what does the Lord require of you? Do justice. Now, I believe that this is a message that many of us need to hear from the Lord. And I believe that this is a message that many of our African-American brothers and sisters inside the church have been trying to express to the broader Christian community for generations. We need more than lip service about equality and how we're all the same. We need more than just going through the motions, offering our worship to God while injustice continues. We need you to stand up with us and do justice. Notice what God is saying here. Do justice. Do is a verb. It's active. God is saying you need to do justice. God's people couldn't just know justice. God's people couldn't just say, we want justice. Until God's people were committed to actively doing what is just, God was not pleased. It's an active thing. So let's talk about this. Most of us know what justice is, definitionally. Justice is fairness, Impartiality and equity. Fairness, impartiality, and equity. And family, this is a deeply rooted biblical principle. So deep that you trace it back to the character of God Himself. Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Because of that, you and I are called to be people who seek justice. Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. We're reminded then in Proverbs seventeen fifteen. That he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. In Proverbs, there, we're learning that if you declare a wicked person, a guilty person, innocent, you're an abomination to the Lord. Or conversely, if you take a wicked, guilty person and declare them innocent, you are an abomination to the Lord. That is an abomination. Justice demands that we treat all people equally. Justice demands that it is the innocent who are vindicated and it is the guilty who are punished. This is what God requires. <clears throat> now what's so significant about this is that justice transcends sides. Justice transcends sides. We live in a polarized nation. Some would say more polarized than they can remember even in their lifetimes. Everyone is on a side. Black lives matter. Blue lives matter. All lives matter. Some people say racism is institutional and systemic. Others say racism is individual and limited. Too many people align themselves with a side and follow that side wherever it goes. One of the reasons for this is that we live in echo chambers. We hang out with people that are like us, that think like us, that believe like us. And media and social media only reinforce this terrible echo chamber that we live in. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you support the president, that you are a big fan of Donald Trump. It is likely that most of the people that you're friends with on social media also support Donald Trump, support the president. And because of the people that you follow, because of the videos that you watch and the posts that you read, the algorithms on social media continue to feed you that same type of content. And what that does is it causes you to think that the vast majority of people around you, the vast majority of people in this country, think just like you do. Now, you're aware that some people think differently, but you think that they're a small minority and everybody thinks like you. And all of a sudden, you believe that Donald Trump is probably the greatest president ever. Maybe Abraham Lincoln was better, but only slightly. Friends, Abraham Lincoln fought against slavery Conversely, if you dislike the president, it is likely that most of the people that you follow on social media, most of the accounts that you follow on social media are reinforcing that worldview and there's a narrative that's being communicated constantly so that President Trump is the worst president ever in the history of the United States. If Adolf Hitler was running in 2020, any moral person would vote for Adolf Hitler I mean, that's like what would be reinforced. We live in echo chambers, only having our own narratives and our own belief system being reinforced. As Christians, we have to be reminded we are on the side of justice. And justice is not located in a particular group. Now, that's not to say that some groups can't align themselves with with the just cause. They certainly do. But it is to say that as Christians, family, our standards by which we evaluate a situation is not limited to groupthink. It's not. We as Christians follow justice wherever it leads. And listen, sometimes it leads outside of the group that we naturally align ourselves with. And that's where we should be aligned, on the side of justice. I want to just have a moment of introspection. And I'm going to use, a, I guess, a more obvious form of questioning for a moment of introspection. It's two questions. And it's going to be two perspectives. And I just want each of us to sit with this today. So first, if, if, you, if you find yourself always siding against the police, could it be that you love your community more than you love justice? Now let me flip this. If you find yourself always siding with the police, could it be could it be possible that you love the justice system more than you love justice? We have to be a people that elevate ourselves by God's grace above, again, groupthink. To say that it's not about aligning with a side or a group, it's about aligning with God's heart and aligning with justice, wherever that leads me. Now, I want to put a little bit of skin on this concept of justice by applying it to this cultural situation. And I want to begin with the death of George Floyd, and I want to work our way outward. There's four steps. This isn't exhaustive. Hopefully, it's just helpful. When you saw the video of George Floyd, here's what justice looks like. Justice demands an investigation and a prosecution. If you disagree with that, you have to ask yourself, why? Why do you disagree with that? The video is abundantly clear that Mr. Floyd was no longer a threat to the safety of the officers. And although the two autopsies differ on the cause of death, they agree that the officers applied lethal force. Justice demands an investigation and a prosecution in this situation. And thank God... That is what is happening. Number two, justice demands that the officers get due process under the law. If you disagree with that, you have to ask yourself why. The officers deserve their day in the court. It was a grave injustice that Mr. Floyd was tried, convicted, and executed in the street. But it is also an injustice for the officers to be tried, convicted, and punished via social media. They deserve, like all Americans, due process they deserve a day in court. Number three, justice also demands that we denounce all violence against other police officers and civilians, and all destruction of property and looting. All of those acts are sinful and destructive. Now, I know some people push back against that statement, and they say, listen, property can be replaced, but lives cannot. And of course, that sentiment is true. A life and the taking of a life is a worse injustice than the destruction of property. I understand that. But there are two things to consider. Number one, there are other innocent lives being taken right now police officers who had nothing to do with the death of George Floyd have been killed in this nation, as well as innocent civilians, shop owners, and homeowners. So other lives are being destroyed. Not only that, family, our choice is not either or. Our choice is not justice for Mr. Floyd or justice for the other officers or other people. Our choice is a both and it's justice for Floyd and justice for the rest of Americans. Fourth and finally, justice demands that we seek to address systems and structures that continue to foster injustice against all vulnerable peoples, and in this cultural moment, especially people of color. According to the Bible Project, the word justice in the Bible can refer to retributive justice, meaning you do the crime, you do the time. So you break the law, you're penalized for it. But I quote, most often it refers to restorative justice. In that sense, they say, it means actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. To be clear, this means way more than charity. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. Now obviously all of us can look back in our nation's history and we can look at something like slavery and we can agree that that is a institutional injustice. There was a structural power in place, a system in place that oppressed people. We could say the same thing about denying African Americans the right to vote. We can say the same thing about segregation and by God's grace and to God's glory those things have been done away with. However, people still point to a wide array of systemic and institutional practices that prevent justice. For example, as it relates to the criminal justice system, incarceration rates and disparities in sentencing for blacks, inequity in bail limits causing more, many more poor and often minorities to sit in prison awaiting their trial and preparing their defense there policing practices that increase the likelihood of African Americans to be pulled over without probable cause, or escalate rather than de-escalate interactions with the African American community, etc., etc. Now, of course, we can have differing opinions on the validity of any of those things, but the point is simply this, that a biblical view of justice demands that we as Christians Look into these things and try to discern their truthfulness and their root causes and then seek to address them. That's what a biblical view of justice is. It's to do justice, not to just think about justice or want justice. We have to do justice. Number two, and I promise the next ones will come a little bit faster. Love, mercy, And you're going to see that the three things that we're required to do in Micah 6, 8 are like links in a chain. They're all connected. They build on each other. Love, mercy. Of course, in the ESV, it says love, kindness. Or if you have an ESV, you'll see a little note there. And then if you drop down, it'll say that this can be translated steadfast love. If so, then it would read do justice and do steadfast love. Now, often the Hebrew here... um, is used to talk about God's steadfast love toward his people. Many examples of this in the Old Testament. It's God's faithful, consistent, covenantal love toward his people. Point being this, whether it should be translated mercy or do steadfast love, the general idea here is similar. The people of God are called to a posture of heart that is like God's heart. A heart that looks on the sufferings and plight of other people with love and compassion and mercy. And this is so important because you will not do justice unless you love mercy. Now, I'm not suggesting that a person would never do anything just, but I am suggesting that you won't do justice consistently unless you love mercy. Now, the people in Micah's day, they knew what justice looked like. They had God's law. They had God's standards about what it meant to live like God's people in their interactions with each other. Here was the problem. It wasn't a lack of knowledge. It was an unwillingness to actually do what was just. They didn't care about the people in their society who they were oppressing. They were propping propping themselves up on top of the suffering of other people in the community. And history teaches us a nasty lesson. That oftentimes, when oppressed groups gain power, they themselves become oppressors. We see this with God's own people. One of the reasons that God allowed His people at the start of their national identity to become slaves in Egypt for 400 years, was so that God's people would develop a posture of heart that was empathetic to the sojourner and the foreigner and the person who is different from them, that they would understand what it was like to be oppressed so that they themselves would never become oppressors. Did it work? Tragically, no. Fast forward several hundred years, and you're in Micah's day, and here are God's people who knew nationally, ethnically, what it was like to be slaves in terrible situations, and they are fully comfortable oppressing other people. This is crazy. This is the way injustice works. Where does this come from? This comes from dehumanizing other people. Not literally saying in every circumstance that, oh, that person's not a human. But in subtle ways, looking at somebody else as less than. The rich and powerful can do this toward the poor and weak. Those who are well-educated and intelligent can do this to those who are uneducated. One race can do this to another race. One nation can do this to another nation. So the question becomes, how do we break this cycle? How do we fully humanize every other person so that we see all people as equally valuable and deserving of justice? Family, the only answer is this. By understanding that every single person is created in the image of God, there is no other way. Here's Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Christianity was revolutionary in the ancient world. 2,000 years ago, the assumption of every culture was that, in fact, some people are less than other people. There were caste systems and class systems, patriarchy, the, meaning the devaluing of women, the devaluing of children. Slavery was rampant. Aristotle, of course, thought that the philosopher was superior to manual workers. In every society in the ancient world, there were people who were understood to be less than the dominant power groups. And Christianity came along and said, no, never. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What is Paul saying? Is he saying that there really aren't men and women in any differences? Is he really saying that there weren't class differences in his society? No, what he's saying is that in Christ Jesus, all of those differences are subsumed under the greater unity that we have, which is that we are all equal in God's eyes. This was revolutionary. This shattered the concept of the world at that time. Nancy Piercy, in her excellent book, I would recommend to you, Love Thy Body, notes that philosopher Luke Ferry, and this is so surprising because this is in a book promoting atheism, he says that it was Christianity that introduced the concept of equal rights. She also points to another atheist, Richard Rorty, who says the same in a lecture at UNESCO, which is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. He noted, and I quote, that throughout history, societies have come up with various ways to exclude certain groups From the human family those who belong to a different tribe clan race or religion were labeled subhuman christianity he says gave rise to the concept of universal rights derived from the conviction that all human beings are created in the image of god this is where this came from this is what leveled the playing field and this is the only foundation that can actually address the prejudice, and the racism in the heart of human beings. God loves all people because all people are created in his image. We fail to love and value all people because we fail to apply that singular and foundational theological truth. Mercy is the thing that Derek Chauvin was lacking on the day that he knelt on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes. Mercy is the thing that we must walk in. We must be a people who love mercy because we are a people who see one another the way that God sees us. Third and finally, walk humbly. What does the Lord require of you but to walk humbly with your God? The word walk means to live a certain way. The word humble there, humbly, is difficult to translate, as was mercy. The reason is because it's not the normal word in the Hebrew that is translated humbly. It can be rendered to walk carefully with your God. In other words, to live your life the way that God wants you to live your life. And when you stop and think about it, to walk humbly with your God and to live the way that God wants you to live your life are not far from each other. Because a humble posture of heart says, I'm not God, you're God, you're on the throne, you're the boss, you set the standards, you make the rules, and I'm a creature, and I just follow them. That's humility, and that's what it looks like to walk carefully with your God. It's a Godward orientation to life. I belong to you. I serve you. I follow you wherever you lead me. For Micah's audience, their hearts had departed from God. And Micah As God's prophet to the nation was calling them back to a heartfelt repentance. Return to the Lord. Don't go through the motions. Align your life with who God is and who he's calling you to be. Enough with the empty ritual. God is calling you to heartfelt worship. And here's the key for us this morning. Like I said, these three things are like links in a chain. They build on one another. A heart that is right with God. Meaning that you yourself have received God's undeserved love and mercy is a heart that loves mercy. When you've received God's mercy through faith in Jesus Christ and you understand I didn't deserve that, I didn't earn that, that was freely purchased for me on Calvary's cross by the Son of God, when you get that, it gives you a heart of mercy. And when you have a heart of mercy, a heart that loves mercy, you will have a heart that does justice. It's all connected. So when well-meaning Christians pit social justice against gospel ministry, it does not work that way. Of course, you can do social justice and be devoid of gospel ministry. I'm not denying that. But you cannot do true gospel ministry without also addressing social justice. They are intricately connected. If you love God, you love mercy, and you do justice, period. You can't separate these things. So family, what I'm trying to say to you is that what God requires of us if we're going to be gospel people is that first and foremost, we are reconciled to God through Christ by faith. And that we are recipients of God's amazing mercy so that our hearts can be transformed and we become a people that love mercy, a people that care for one another, a people that see every other person as our equal, as full of dignity and value and worth and deserving of dignity and love and respect. And only then when we see each other that way can we be a people who rise above groupthink. A people who follow justice wherever it leads us and say, I am on the side of justice, period. Let me conclude by reversing the order here. Walk humbly with your God. Be a lover of mercy and do justice. And family, in this cultural moment that you and I are living in, as we've been confronted with the reality of the pain and the suffering of people of color, it is absolutely essential for us to not turn a blind eye. To be a people who listen, a people who learn, and a people who seek change. That's what gospel ministry is looks like. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, so unbelievably grateful for the good news of the gospel. To know that In this world that feels so chaotic and so polarized, and at times so devoid of love, to know that our Creator loves us with an everlasting love. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, that gives us such great joy, such great security such great peace. But Lord, we know that your love extends beyond the walls of the church, that you don't only love those who have been reconciled to you through repentance and faith in Jesus, but that you love all of your creation and that you love every single man, woman, and child because they are all your image. What a hopeful message. What a hopeful reality. Lord, we pray that we as the church would, in word and deed, reflect that truth to the world around us. That they would see that inside the walls of the church, these distinctions, these dividing walls that exist in society are done away with. That they would see that we genuinely love, value, respect, and honor one another. And Lord, we pray that as we are a people who love mercy and have compassion and care and concern for everyone, that our hearts would work themselves outward to be active doers of justice. And Lord, there's plenty of room for debate and disagreement on how to achieve justice and what the means are to that end, but there is no disagreement in the house of God that justice has to be the end as we see human suffering or oppression. And so, Lord, give us grace. Give us wisdom. Give us humility. Help us to, as we learned in James a couple of months ago, to be swift to listen and slow to speak. And, Lord, we pray for this nation right now, that, Lord, through all of the chaos, that you would bring sweeping and widespread revival Lord, that it wouldn't just be political unity, but there, that there would be profound spiritual revival. That, Lord, you would use the mess that we're seeing right now to bring about those ultimate end purposes that are good, reconcile, or reconciling people back to you. Lord, don't let us miss this opportunity. Don't let us bury our heads in the sand. Lord, help us to be like a city on a hill whose light cannot be hidden. And we ask this for your glory and for the good of all. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Amen.